Let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask you, ask you to send the Holy Spirit upon us today. Uh, because we are starting the study of the Romans. Romans is the most difficult of all of Paul's letters. But with your help, with your grace, we will get through it, we will understand it, and hopefully abide by it. So we ask your blessing on our efforts today and always. And we give you praise and thanksgiving and all thanks in Jesus' name. Today we're going to begin the study of Paul's letter to the Romans. And I just know that you've all just picked it up and read it and have no problems, right? It is the most difficult of all of Paul's 13 letters. And by the way, I know that I promised you a list of the letters in the order in which they were written. And I forgot about it until Susan reminded me this morning. And therefore, I will try to get it to you. Because it does help for those of you who are going to take on the task of reading the rest of Paul's letters it would be wise to read them in the order in which they were written. That is not the way they are in your Bible. Okay. And as I've mentioned before, but for those of you who may not have heard or weren't here, they are in the Bible in a specific order. Anybody understand or remember why or how? In the number of words, yes. Uh, and why? Aha, gotcha. That's the way the prophets were listed in the Bible 200 years before Christ, when the Septuagint version, the Greek version, that is, of the Hebrew scriptures was written. Since there were no dates, and the person or persons who brought the Hebrew scriptures together into the Septuagint version or the Greek version, of the Old Testament, since they didn't know the dates, they put them in the order of their length, the number of words. Okay. So when you read the prophets, you've got to be very careful uh, to try to understand uh, the time period that they are covered because uh, that influences the meaning of those words. Paul's letters were somewhat the same way. <clears throat> Dates were not that important, uh, so there are no dates on any of his letters, but we can tell from some of the things that are said, uh, some of the ideas and the change in Paul's uh, wording, that certain letters were obviously written first. So, we'll go through that um, perhaps next week, all right? But today I want to get into talking about Paul's letters to letter to the Romans. Now, you will see, as you read through, that many of those subjects that are in that letter were covered in part or in detail in Galatians. And that's why Galatians and Romans are always taught pretty much together, because Galatians precedes Romans. It's almost as if 
Paul sat down after writing Galatians and was so fired up and thought that he did a pretty good job that he better continue with that stream of thought and write to the Romans. But for an entirely different reason. As you recall, he wrote the letter to the Galatians because of the troublemakers that were insisting that the converts to Christianity from whatever faith or lack of faith that they had before had to go through the uh, Jewish rite of circumcision and observe the Jewish laws. And Paul was fired up by saying, no, that is not necessary that Christ and his life, death, and resurrection fulfilled all of the promises uh, and prophecies of the Old Testament and the law, and therefore it was not necessary to go through the rite of circumcision because if you did that, then you were binding yourself to God through the teachings of Moses, and therefore you would have to observe all those teachings. That's very clear in Galatians, not so much in Romans. Because Romans is being written to a totally different uh, audience, you might say, and for a totally different reason. But one of the reasons, of course, is the same, which I'll get to in a minute. Paul had two or three reasons why he was writing to the Romans. First of all, first of all he didn't know those people. Unlike Galatians, where he knew them well and had established those church houses in throughout uh, the Galatian territory, he didn't know the Roman people at all. There were a few that he knew from other sources, but for the majority of the people, he did not know them. He had not been to Rome. He had not established any of those churches. Okay, So he wanted to introduce himself and what he had learned through his revelations. Uh, secondly, he was, as he says in Galatians, he was pretty well finished with establishing the various church uh, churches in Turkey or the Galatian territory and now he wanted to move on and he wanted to move west uh, and he had intended to go all the way to Spain but he wanted to stop in Rome first of all to meet and greet the people and spend some time with them uh, then he was hoping to gain their support both physical and financial, uh, to carry that back to Jerusalem, as he had done before in other territories. He had taken up a collection. Now, why would he do that? And what for? Well, as persecutions in Jerusalem and all of those areas around Jerusalem in the province of Judah, uh, as it developed Christianity, those people were ostracized, criticized, and expelled from the synagogues. But not only that, many of them lost their jobs. Uh, shopkeepers would not sell to them. 
many of them were starving, all because of their perse- uh, all because of their uh, conversion to Christianity. So Paul was taking up a collection from the other non-Jewish churches, the converts, um, and he was taking it eventually to Rome, I mean, sorry, to Jerusalem before going to Rome. Unfortunately, as the story goes, when he did get to Jerusalem, the authorities there put him in prison and accused him of all kinds of things, primarily of uh, teaching that the law was no longer necessary and people did not have to abide by it, which he did, but for a somewhat different reason, as you know. Okay, so there were reasons other than those for the letter to the Galatians regarding the letter to the Romans. Again, it was because he wanted to meet and greet them uh, and get to know them and establish sort of a a relationship base there. He wanted uh, their support, not only for the people of uh, Jerusalem, but also for his efforts to eventually get to Spain. There was another reason that isn't mentioned in your books, but I feel very strongly that those people who were converts to Christianity in Rome, both Jewish converts and Roman converts, or or non-Jews, didn't know a lot of the details as to why. And the information that Paul acquired through those revelations way back uh, in years before in Arabia. And that is the core of why, of what Christianity is all about. The life, death, and resurrection and the benefits uh, of Christ's crucifixion. The benefits were not really totally understood, and they were not written down anywhere else except in Paul's writings. And so he wanted really for them to get to know that. Not only that, but to get to know the Trinity and uh, the works of the Holy Spirit. Now, as I said, none of that is written down. What surprises me, and I've done a lot of research on this, is very, very few writers expound on Paul's revelations. They're mentioned, but they're mentioned briefly as part of Paul's history. They are not really mentioned as an important ingredient uh, and the emphasis behind Paul's strong force and his insistence that his gospel is the correct one. And that's really important for us to realize uh, the importance of those revelations and why they are not uh, discussed more uh, is rather difficult for me to understand. But then again, there is no detail except Paul's writings about them. And that is very skimpy. Okay. Uh, so perhaps it's difficult to expound on something that people don't know and have no way to investigate um, 
or to discuss, really, other than the way Paul is doing it. But I feel it's the important thing for us to remember. Now, when we get to Romans, the book itself, the letter itself, is actually delivered by a woman convert from Judaism and taken there um, aside from uh, from Paul. Paul did not deliver it himself. It was taken there long before Paul ever finally got there, and when he did, it was under a whole different circumstance. He was actually a prisoner at that time, uh, waiting for an audience uh, from the emperor, Caesar. Okay. So, the letter really starts out with a lot of repetition, you might say, from uh, Galatians. And we'll get into that in a way. But the primary uh, point of chapters 1 through 3 is the whole idea of humanity is lost without the gospel. In other words, without the understanding and the acceptance and the living by the gospel that Paul preached. Now, of course, Again, this is repetition, but it is something important because you got to think now that we are talking to a totally different audience. Or Paul is talking to a totally different audience. And the emphasis will be slightly different. Okay. He's not calling them stupid or things like he did in Galatians. I mean, you know, that's a real strong way to try to influence and influence people. But he did use some rather strong language. Um, But again, you've got to remember that in Jewish writing, and Paul was a Jew, in Jewish writing, exaggeration is a form of emphasis. And so wherever you see something that appears to be a real exaggeration, think about what is being said Not so much about the exaggeration part of it, but the fact that exaggeration is a form of emphasis. That's that's part of the style of Jewish writing. So what he's talking about here is that humanity is lost without the gospel. Now, because of the amount of detail in this letter and the importance of it, we have to do, unlike I did for Galatians, uh, where I sort of took it in big chunks, you might say, of information, we're going to actually have to go through some of the actual uh, reading and rereading in order to get the true emphasis of what Paul is saying. So if you don't mind, and you turn to page 43... I'm not going to mince every single word, but uh, really it's it's kind of important that we go through this on a line-by-line basis. In traditional Jewish writing of this kind, there's always a very flowery uh, greeting of some kind. Uh, This minimizes that. If you get into some of the others, 
particularly Corinthians and uh, Philippians, you find a very uh, vociferous uh, greeting of some kind. But Paul here says, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Remember, there were no Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John gospels. So he's talking solely about the very essence uh, of the preaching of those gospels. And set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised previously through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And if you remember from our study of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 61, he goes into a lot of detail, Isaiah that is, goes into a lot of detail, which really parallels right into uh, this. The gospel's about his son, that is, uh, the descendant, singular again, from David according to the flesh. Remember, uh, the covenant that God established with Abraham, and we're going to get into a lot of the Abraham history a little later here, but the covenant that God established with Abraham is that he would receive a descendant uh, and land and protection, okay? The descendant most people interpret was Isaac, which in the flesh was correct. Spiritually speaking, no. Uh, The descendant was Jesus Christ himself, which was born, you know, a thousand years later. uh, No, two thousand years later, pardon me. Uh, But that's a, a... a long explanation there on that one. Um, the bad feature with talking and then reading some of this is that sometimes I lose uh, where I left off here. Okay, But established as son of God in the power according to the spirit of holiness through uh, resurrection from the dead. Now, if you were somebody in a foreign country and knew nothing about what he's talking about here, that's a rather strange opening, isn't it? Uh, And I think from a few comments that people have made as they came in this morning, um, they're finding Romans rather difficult to understand. And that's why we're going through here on almost line-by-line basis. All right. Through him, meaning God in Jesus Christ. We have received the grace of apostleship. Now, the word apostle means one who is specifically sent by Christ himself. So, Paul considers himself an apostle because not only of the event of his Conversion that is being knocked off his horse and so forth and so on, which we talked about before, but all of the revelations that he has received um, from Christ through the Holy Spirit. Through him we have received the grace of apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith 
for the sake of his name among all the Gentiles, among whom you are also, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ and to all beloved of God in Rome, called to be holy. You're all called to be holy. Remember what he is trying to do is get away from the idea of the observance of laws. And so he's using words here that would be a little strange to everybody, but for those people who were fired up and had accepted the teachings of Christ, I'm sure that the Holy Spirit was working very diligently uh, to inspire those same people. And so they were fired up, ready to receive what he's talking about here. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's about the end of the greeting, you might say. First, I give thanks to my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is heralded throughout the world. God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in proclaiming the gospel of his Son. And I remember you constantly, always asking in my prayers that somehow, by God's will, I may at last find my way clear to come to you. For I long to see you, that I may share with you some spiritual gifts, so that you may be strengthened. See, there's where I get the idea that one of his objectives of going there is to share these spiritual gifts that none of the other people who had been there to um, preach the gospel or preach the teachings of Christ uh, could have given them because they didn't know about it yet. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by one another's faith, yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I often planned to come to you, though I was prevented until now, that I might harvest some fruit among you too, as among the rest of the Gentiles. Now, he's not talking about apples and oranges there, you know. Okay? He wants not fruit of the Spirit, you might say, which we'll talk about later. Uh, I might harvest some fruit among you, too, as among the rest of the Gentiles, to the Greeks and the non-Greeks alike, to the wise and the ignorant. I am under obligation, and that obligation came from those revelations. That is why I am eager to preach the gospel also to you in Rome. All right. Now back up again at verse 14, when he says to Greeks and non-Greeks, that is sort of a euphemism, you might say, for all people who were not Jews. Okay. Remember, even the, even though he's speaking to Romans, he's not using the term Greek as a, uh, identity for, for people from Greece. He's using it to people who speak the Greek language. Because at this time in the Roman Empire, 
Greek was the language of the elite, of the educated. And all of the Romans who were educated spoke Greek. Latin didn't come until later. And Latin was considered uh, the language of the peasants. Uh, almost a vulgar language, you might say. And the word vulgar is where we get, uh, well, we get the word vulgar from the Latin for it, which is vulgate. Remember the Latin version of the Bible that St. Jerome translated in the 4th century was called the Vulgate for 1,500 years until it was translated into various other languages. Okay. Just a little side, you might say. Now, the main point of these two chapters. God's power for salvation. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First Jew, and then Greek. And why? The Jewish people were, and still are, the chosen people of God. They were the ones that God ministered to and created a covenant with them for, the, for a specific purpose. Unfortunately, in their minds, it sort of uh, got twisted, and instead of being for that purpose, they took it upon themselves that they were the chosen people because they were so great. Uh-uh, that was not the reason. They were chosen for a specific reason which they did not fulfill. For it is revealed the righteousness of God from faith to faith, as it is written, the one who is righteous by faith will live. Now, what we talked about last week and the weeks before, righteousness or justification is the manifestation, the outward manifestation of your faith. Your faith is what you believe from the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But that is solely mental uh, mind and heart type of thing. What you have to do is to manifest that faith through your living, through your speech, and through your actions. And they have to be in accordance with what God wants of you what Jesus Christ wants of you as individuals, right? And that is what justification or righteousness is all about. A lot of people use a lot of fancy other words and so forth, but it boils down to faith through love. And love, as you know from our talk last week, has to be shared by all. And with all. Let's go on at verse 18 here. The wrath of God is indeed being revealed from heaven against every impiety and wickedness of those who suppress the truth by their wickedness. 
For what can be known about God is evident to them, because God made it evident to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes of eternal power and divinity have been able to be understood and perceived in what he has made. That's a very important statement. Because what Paul is really saying there is that in spite of the difficulties of people and the lack of education, the mere fact that God had given them a world that was so precise, so perfect in itself, the sun and the moon rose on a regular schedule, Uh, The seasons change at a regular time over and over and over. And things could be devised that should have caused them to think that a perfect God made those things out of love. And yet they um, took upon themselves to worship things rather than God. And that's where we get this idea of idolaters, because what was happening here is that they were worshipping the sun and the moon. Uh, Remember, the Jewish people based all of their uh, recordings, their history, on the lunar calendar. (laughs) And they got so that they were worshipping those kinds of heavenly bodies, you might say, as well as animals and other things. That's this whole purpose of this reading here. It says, ever since the creation of the world, his, that is God's invisible attributes of eternal power and divinity have been able to be understood by everyone, not just the educated, and perceived in what he has made. As a result, they have no excuse For although they knew God, they did not accord him glory as God or give him thanks. Instead, they became vain in their reasoning and their senseless minds were darkened. While claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the likeness of an image of mortal man or of birds or four-legged animals or snakes. Right. That is like statues um, or living things. Okay. Therefore, God handed them over to impurity through the lusts of their hearts for the mutual degradation of their bodies. I don't want to go into the rest of this wording. You get the idea, okay? Because I want to move on. But he's really chastising not only the Jewish people who did these things. But he's chastising the Romans because they were uh, known to be a rather idolatrous and sensuous people. Okay. Uh, much of Roman mythology uh, was based on the whole uh, trumped up stories of mythical gods who were then over a period of time worshipped and There were so many things that were dedicated to um, the body 
and glorifying the body and all of its uses, and you get what I mean, um, that God has come down upon them uh, through the teachings of Paul. Okay. God's last uh, just judgment, chapter 2. Therefore, you are with it, uh, without excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for by the standard by which you judge other uh, another, you condemn yourselves. And since you, the judge, do the same things, we know that judgment of God on those who do such things is true. The whole idea here now is he's getting into this idea that as Christians, we have to give up being judgmental um, and critical of others, even though we recognize that others are doing things that are wrong. Okay. Uh, it's interesting that there was an article in the paper, I believe it was just yesterday, um, Pope Francis is trying to get people, in a way, uh, to make some changes in, the, in this synod that is going on in Rome. And it's sort of misunderstood in the way it is presented in the paper, which is not new, of course. He is not changing the church's attitude towards sexuality, uh, homosexuality, um, marriage outside the church, and so forth. <clears throat> but what he is saying is that the infringements of those people who engage in such activity is between them and God. It is not up to us to criticize or make judgment against them. Okay, um, We have gotten ourselves into a mode a lot like the Jewish people. We have locked ourselves into the idea of observing laws, the laws of the church, rather than observing the law of love. And therefore, we have got to kind of search our own minds and hearts. And if we uh, are required to associate or house or be with people who engage in some of these activities that we previously disapproved of, we must still love them with the idea of agape love, that is unconditional love. We cannot judge. So we have a problem. I remember uh, being at someone's house one day where, uh, or an evening where someone said that his brother uh, was gay and had a partner and so forth. And that he, as the brother, could not look upon his sibling there uh, in any other way except he was my brother, and I had to love him. Well, a few other people took offense with that. They said, this guy is doing something that is wrong according to the church. Well, according to the teachings of the church, yes. But taking offense and showing that offense is also wrong, because what you're doing is you're not loving that person. So we have to be very, very careful in watching 
how we express our feelings. And the idea is that you can't say anything good about somebody, don't say anything at all. Okay? At least that's the minimum. Love thy neighbor regardless of what he or she does or thinks or says. Love thy neighbor is far greater than being judgmental, which we have no right to do. Yes, sir. Let's go on to the judgment by the interior law. All who sin outside the law will also perish without reference to it. And all who sin under the law will be judged in accordance with it. Now that sounds a little strange to me, and I'm sure some of you. Okay. All who sin outside the law. Alright, that means all the Greeks or the non-Jewish people who sin. And sin is against the built-in moral law. We all know right from wrong that's built into us even as little children. You ask a little child, well, did you do that? Oh no, well, I didn't. You know, even though you know darn well he did. Uh, but that's the first thing little children will do. No, you know, he will just deny things that were obvious. Adults do the same thing. Okay. But they are being held responsible for their actions in accordance with the moral law. Now, the ones under the Jewish law, if they don't observe all of the 613 Jewish laws, then they will be held responsible for it. And as we've talked about before, some of those Jewish laws are so um, binding on the individual that they can hardly breathe uh, without you know, upsetting, upsetting the apple cart, so to speak. Okay. For it is not those who hear the law who are just in the sight of God, but rather those who observe the law will be justified. In other words, if a person is aware of something but doesn't understand or it is not part of his or her uh, belief and so forth, well, you can't really hold them responsible. Uh, but there are very few things that would fall under that category. Because the moral law is built into each human being. Um, For when the Gentiles, who do not have the law by nature, observe the prescriptions of the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. In other words, a lot of Gentiles live in among and with the Jewish people. If they observe the same laws as the Jewish people, uh, you know, that was a a good thing for them, uh, perhaps at the time, Um, but it wasn't probably necessary. They show that the demands of the law are written in their heart. That's true. The demands of the moral law are written in their hearts, our hearts while their conscience also bears witness 
and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even defend them. That's, again, Paul's whole stance of the flesh against the spirit and vice versa. See, they who show the demands of the law are written in their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness with their conflicting thoughts, um, accuse or even defend them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge people's hidden works through Jesus Christ. So each of us is responsible as individuals for the moral law and for living according to the teachings of Christ. Now, we're getting to look at the other side of the picture, you might say. Now, if you call yourself a Jew, and see, this goes back to a question somebody asked. If Paul is writing to the Gentiles or to converts in Rome, why is he bringing up the Jewish law so much? I think he sometimes forgets that a lot of the people who will be reading this are not Jews. Um, and that would be, uh, you know, a rather small part. Now, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast of God and know his will and are able to discern what is important since you are instructed uh, from the law, and if you are confined, if you are confident that you are a guide for the blind and a light for those in darkness, that you are a trainer of the foolish and teacher of the simple, in other words, if you are perfect, yeah, because in... In the law, you have the formulation of knowledge and truth. Then, you who teach another, are you failing to teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who forbid adultery, do you commit adultery? And so on and so forth. Circumcision, to be sure, has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcised. Again, if an uncircumcised man keeps the precepts of the law, but will he not be considered circumcised? Indeed, those who are physically uncircumcised but carry out the law will pass judgment on you. And of course, that would be the Greeks and those who passed over uh, or converted to Christianity. One is not a Jew outwardly. True circumcision is not outward in the flesh. It better not be. Rather, one is a Jew inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart, in the spirit, not the letter. His praise is not from human beings, but from God. Uh, the whole idea here is we're talking about the difference between the flesh and the spirit. Uh, a person can be 
And, and this is true for Catholics or, or Christians. You might say, and we know a lot of politicians that do this, oh, I'm a Catholic hoping to gain the Catholic vote. But the individual, the politician that is, doesn't vote in accordance with Catholic belief. And, you know, that has bothered me and a lot of people for a long time. Because that person is not professing and doing the things that Catholicism says you must do, or Christianity says you must do. What they're doing, of course, as we all know, is protecting their behinds and, and their appointed job. Okay. Now, Paul in Romans, he didn't in Galatians, but in Romans, he asks the reader a lot of questions. And this is a literary technique, you might say, of presenting uh, obstacles, you might say, or objections by raising uh, various questions. What, adv- what advantage is there than in being a Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in respect, that is, looking backward, in the first place, they were entrusted with the utterances of God. In other words, God spoke to the Jewish people over and over and over for 2,000 years. What if some were unfaithful? Well, there were a lot of them unfaithful. Will their infidelity nullify the fidelity of God? Of course not. In other words, God was God, always. And though he tried to raise those people up to a level above every other nation at the time, they still faltered. God must be true to himself. My words added. Though every human being is a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and conquer uh, when you are judged. But if our wickedness provides proof of God's righteousness, what can we say? Is God unjust, humanly speaking, to inflict his wrath? Of course not. In other words, God has raised us, and particularly the Jewish people, up to a level very close to him. Or he has tried to do this by, you know, the patriarchs, the prophets, and several other people, the judges, and certain uh, prominent people such as David. Uh, but those people still sin. Those people were still guilty of idolatry, etc., etc. Et and is this a reflection on God? No. God is perfect and always was and always will be. What is happening here is that the people are ignoring God and the graces that he is trying to give them. For how else is God to judge the world? But if God's truth redounds to his glory through my falsehood, or anyone's falsehood, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? It's the whole idea of we are given the graces to be perfect, 
But if we do not use them in curtailing our appetites, our desires, our passions, etc., then we are refusing uh, the help and the graces of God. As we as we are accused, and as some claim, we say that we should do evil because that is our we are prone to evil. Uh, that good may come of it. No, their penalty is what they deserve. Well, then, are we better off? Not entirely. For we have already brought the charge against Jews and Greeks alike, that they are under the domination of sin. We are all under the domination of sin. And it is written, there is no one just, not one. There is no one who understands that there is no one who seeks God. All are gone astray. All alike are worthless. There is not one who does good. There is not even one. Their throats are open graves. They re- this is from Ezekiel. They deceive with their tongues the venom of asps as upon their lips. Their mouths are full of bitter cursing. Their feet are quick to shed blood. Ruin and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they know not. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Oh. Wow. Wow. We do the same thing. How often are we faced with a temptation of some kind and we weigh the consequences? Is this an offense? And I'm not talking about, you know, the temptations of eating an extra piece of chocolate cake or something. I'm talking about major uh, sinful things. Yeah. You got to be very careful when you talk about temptations. All right, the most most people, the first thing they'll think about is food. I don't know why, but it's true. Uh, but no, what Paul is really talking about is just because we are professed to be Christians, that doesn't give us an automatic uh, shield against all temptations or all. Uh, evil powers, we still are uh, we still are afflicted, you might say, by temptations from the evil one or evil one under the disguise of uh, peer groups, you might say. But it's important that we make a choice. Remember we talked about love is a decision. It requires making a choice. And if you don't make that choice, that's what sin is. A failure to love. Simple definition. Sin is a failure to love. Now, love in the sense of agape love, as we talked about last week. Um, And when we are tempted, we have to make a decision. Do we love God enough to reject that temptation and do the right thing? Or are we going to give in? And please don't say, 
oh, I can give in and do what I want to. But I can go to confession on Saturday and everything will be right. No, 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 no. When you look forward to going to confession just to get even with God and, and your own conscience, that doesn't work. God knows the difference. And you've got to be extremely careful. Your faith is precious. And you've got to treat it as, it, as if it is the most precious thing in your life. Because it is. There is nothing more sincere, more precious than your faith. And you've got to treat it that way. Because it is delicate. And the evil one is constantly there. Trying to get us to do things that are wrong. Now, you might say, well, why is there still evil if God is so great? Well, that's not an easy question to answer. But one of it is, there's a balance for everything. For those of you who have taken chem- chemistry or physics in uh, school, you know that for every action there is a reaction. For every positive there is a negative. That is the way the way the world works. And if it wasn't, if everything was good, happy, and gracious, and so forth and so on, why would we need God? So, the negatives help us to evaluate the positive. And by understanding what harm can be brought to our souls by our sin, we then have a way to measure and see why we should not sin. And the other part of that, though, is if God is not part of the equation in making that judgment, then there's something wrong. If you're just doing good because people might criticize you or might think wrong of you or so forth, and you leave God totally out of the picture, then what value is that to you in your relationship with God? That is the problem that the Jewish people got into. In observing these laws, they were more concerned about who was watching them and the criticism that they might get if they didn't observe the law. And so they observe it without any thought whatsoever of God. And that is not what he wants. He wants a relationship with you as an individual. And by establishing that relationship, he gives you the balance the scales, so to speak, the good and the evil. And it's up to you to make the decision. That is what free will is all about. And if we don't, if we just cast it aside, then what we're casting aside is the whole value of our faith in the first place. What troubles me 
because I used to be a Eucharistic minister. I gave it up partly because more than half of the people that would come up to receive the bread, the divine body of Christ, had no clue as to what they were doing. And it was very obvious. The same with the chalice of precious blood. They would not really understand what they were doing. And how unfortunate. That's one of the reasons why I teach, is I hope to get to reach some people and teach them a little bit about what it means to have a personal relationship with Christ and to make or to live in a way that Christ is always foremost in your mind and in your heart and influences the decisions that you make each day. And that's not so difficult. Because it can become a way of life. In the morning you ask God and the Holy Spirit to guide and direct your every thought, word, and deed to his will and his honor and glory. And over a period of time, that becomes something that is a way of life for you. And then is reflected in your actions to others. And the peace and joy that comes from it is really unmeasurable. So, you think the, uh, the Jews really lost reverence for God? Yes, they lost they touch, just, really. Yeah, yeah, they just lost reverence. And, mm-hmm. and that's what we see today, though, is yeah. there's a loss of reverence for God. There is, there's no personal relationship. Yeah. Uh, that is not part of their understanding. That is not part of their unwritten creed. They have no central creed. Um, and it's, you know, each man for himself, you might say. Uh, but the idea of relating directly to God and God's interest in me as a person does not enter into their mind. Now, that doesn't mean that they're not good people. Yeah. Um, but, anyways, does that answer your question, Chet? Okay. Any other questions? All right, let's. Oh, we got to the end of where we were going to go today. All right. Yes, Teresa? We're never finished. Kind of breeze through the introduction. And one of the questions in the back was why does it Catholics have so little acquaintance with Romans? Uh, why do Catholics have so or such little acquaintance with the Paul's letter to the Romans? Is what it is saying. Because of the convoluted wording and the details, you rarely <clears throat> ever hear a priest preach on anything from the Book of Romans. That's true. Uh, and for years, for years, there was very little understanding about Paul's letter to the Romans. It was the first of the theological writings of the church. And it took a while for people to really develop an understanding of what he was talking about 
because it's not easy. As we've already discovered this morning, it is not an easy book to truly understand. You, you've got to really spend time in prayer with the Holy Spirit to look at virtually every word. That's why I cannot take large subjects, you know, and boil it down as we did with Galatians. Uh, it just doesn't work that way. There's so much detail in here, and he flips back and forth, uh, especially in this area where he asks questions. And he does that throughout this book, and that's the only letter, to my knowledge, where he does that. Uh, and, of course, part of it is because it's the only book that he wrote to people he didn't know. And yes, by all means. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Very good point. Very good way of explaining it. Yes. Yes. He's reading. He's writing to people of his educational level, hoping that, of course, eventually that it will filter down to others. But in many cases, it couldn't because of its difficulty in understanding the basics. But he's really reaching into the minds and hearts of all of us who read it. And it is something that is timeless, you might say, uh, because it applies to people of all time periods, all levels uh, of education and understanding. And it makes you think, where do you stand with your relationship with God through Jesus Christ? And are you making judgments uh, or decisions, I should say, not judgments, but are you making decisions on how you lead your life with God in mind? Because if you don't, then you're not really being a true Christian. You are being more like the Jewish people who act without thinking about God whatsoever. Now, They do think of God, yes. But it is like they're offering up uh, observances of prayers in their worship service. Part of their Shabbat service, that is their um, Sabbath day service, is opening up the tabernacle. And what's in the tabernacle? The scrolls of the first five books of the Bible. And that is what they worship. They are not thinking about God himself. That is not part of their structure, you might say. That is not the ultimate purpose uh, of their worship service. And it should be. We are no better if we don't make our going to Mass on Sunday or any other day. The ultimate purpose of going is to worship. Again, as I'll repeat myself, but it, it bears worth repeating. Many people, and you've all heard this, say, I don't get anything out of going to Mass. And the thing is, you're not supposed to get something. You're supposed to give. 
give your time and your worship, your prayers, even your hurts, your sorrows, to God in prayer and offer yourself to him. In return, he gives himself to you through the Eucharist. And if the two of you have made a connection, then you will no doubt feel that you got something, quote-unquote, out of going to that Mass. And that's what it's all about. Just the mere presence in church is not truly fulfilling your obligation, even though many people think it is. You know, they arrive late and they leave early to make up for it. That is not fulfilling your obligation. The obligation is a connection with your mind and your heart to God. And through that, you offer yourself and through the Eucharist, he offers himself to you. And when that connection is made, then that's when you get something out of it. Gene? Well, um, on Paul's letters, he says that uh, the information he got was directly from God. Yes. Okay. And, uh, and that nobody else, uh, he didn't get it from anybody else, but the direct message from God. Now, what about the four Gospels, Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? They were supposed to be inspired by God. Yes. Could you say that the false letters have more weight and more significance than the four Gospels? That's an interesting question that I don't think I've ever been asked. <laughs> All right, I'll repeat it. Knowing Gene, this is a very, very deep question. <laughs> he said, and I quote as best I can, that Paul in Galatians makes a very strong point that he received all of his information regarding Christ and the church, etc., directly from God. There wasn't anybody else involved. And that's true. Now, he said, that was before the Gospels, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John Gospels were written. It is said that those were inspired by God, but not dictated by God. In other words, Paul, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John didn't sit down and say, all right, now God, what's the next sentence or whatever, you know. Uh, No, they were the words of each of those four individuals but they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Okay. Does that make Paul's writings, and this is his point, or his question, does that make Paul's writings more important than the Gospels? The four Gospels. And I just have never, in all my years of teaching, (laughs) experienced that question. But I would say, no. They are of equal importance because they are of the same purpose. 
Okay. Now that's just off the top of my mind because I haven't had a chance to think about it. But I believe that that's what most theologians would say. That Paul's letters are on an equal level with the four Gospels. Because they are of the same purpose. The greater honor and glory of God. Yes, Gene? Uh, Gene offers a suggestion that because Paul was writing primarily to the Gentiles and Matthew's gospel was primarily for the Jews, would that create an equality? Uh, probably in that limited comparison. But remember, Luke was not a Jew. So he was written for Greeks. Matthew, I mean, uh, Mark and John were Jews. So they were written, but they were not written solely for the Jewish people. They were written for a variety of reasons. As we've said before, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what we call the synoptic gospels because the very basic part of it pretty much lines up. It's all of the additional detailed information that is somewhat changed. And as you know, Mark has no uh, infancy stories in there, whereas Matthew and Luke do. Okay, John's gospel, well, let's go back. Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel are written as to show that this man, Jesus, was also God. John's Gospel, which was written much later after he had a lot of time to think about it and pray and and so forth and meditate, was written from a totally opposite point of view. It was God was also man for a specific reason. So you have the total opposite from the other three. Now, whether or not that outweighs the balance between the Gospels and Paul's letters, I still say no. I say they're pretty much on an equal level. Yeah. Yes, Percy? No. No. They were inspired but not in the same way as Paul received his. That Paul's information came to him in visions or revelations, which is not new, which is not unusual or different to various other people within the Bible. John also had visions, as it explains in the book of Revelation. Ezekiel and Jeremiah also had visions. Uh, in the book of Daniel, there are visions, but you've got to be careful about Daniel. Daniel is not history. Daniel is apocalyptic uh, literature 
or a different source. Okay. Uh, so. That was a direct, but you see, the others didn't write anything. Oh, well, yes, in that respect, yes. Yeah. Uh, but I thought you were talking about writings. Uh, no, what you're saying is correct. They did get, get and uh, in chapter 28 of the Gospel of Matthew, he tells them to go forth and preach uh, to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he talked to all of them. So he commissioned all of them to go out and preach and teach. So, yes, and being that he was God, you might say that whatever they taught came directly from God. Yes. Uh Somewhere between 10 and 15 years. Well, we believe that Thomas went as far as India and throughout most of the Roman Empire. Uh, we don't have any um, specific writings that tell us how far they went. Uh, but the edge of the Roman Empire is pretty much... Uh, their limit, except that they did get to India, which was not part of the Roman Empire. So, and a lot to North Africa as well. Yeah. Yeah. Any other questions? Yes. <laughs> they probably used it too. Don't blame everything on the devil. Okay? Don't blame everything. All right. That, that is a, a question that comes up quite often. Don't blame everything on the devil because mankind has his own built-in weaknesses as well. And most of our sinfulness comes from our own weaknesses. Okay? The devil and God is its own problem. And there is what they call uh, spiritual warfare or cosmic warfare. You've all heard, I'm sure, of those particular phrases, uh, which is the battle between the fallen angels, you might say, and God. And that is something that is way beyond all of us to understand. Um, but Satan has often entered into the world to tempt mankind uh, to certain things, you know, that are sinful. 
primarily to get back at God. That was that is his reason. Now, it's a rare thing for Satan to attack an individual. Most of our faults and failures come from our own pride, our selfishness, you know, those kinds of, of faults and failures. Uh, when we do have an incident where somebody has become uh, possessed, uh, that is a very rare thing. And exorcism is the way that is generally used to get rid of that. But exorcism can only be done by a very few appointed clergy. Not just anyone. Uh, of course, you know, if you're, you're tempted to do a little white lie, you can do your own praying and ask for God's help to go right and do the right thing. Uh, so we all have the Holy Spirit to work of, uh, on our side. And that is the far more important thing. The devil is out there, yes, roaming the world, looking for uh, weak individuals. But we have somebody that is far stronger than the devil, and that is the Holy Spirit. If we don't take advantage of that, then we are not true Christians, because we are denying the purpose of the Holy Spirit, which is to help us reach heaven. Any other questions? Let's end with a prayer. Father, we thank you for this time. We ask that you help us, inspire us to truly understand as we continue our efforts in reading and trying to understand Paul's letters. Help us to open our minds and our hearts to what it is you want us to learn and to understand. Help us again also to search our minds to make sure that we are following you in every aspect of our life. So we thank you for this time together. We just thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. Amen.